scenario, okay? There is a large family sitting around the breakfast table. And as the custom was, the father gives thanks for the meal that they are about to eat. But when he lifts his head after praying, he begins to complain about the food. His little daughter interrupts him and says, Father, do you suppose God heard what you said while ago? Well, certainly, said the father with the confident air of an instructor. Well, then did he hear what you said about the bacon and the coffee? Well, of course, the father said, but not quite as confidently as before. And then his little girl asked him again, Father, which did God believe? I think that scenario perhaps describes what goes on in some of our homes. We speak well of God, we praise his name, we honor him, and then we lift our heads to complain about what we don't have. Or we start criticizing others or even cursing others, as we're going to look this evening. We saw a terrible inconsistency last, well, actually two weeks ago, right? When we got our, just got our foot in the door of this important passage about our tongue. We learned two weeks ago of the inability to control our tongue, and we saw that there's not one person in this room that can control their tongue without that divine inner enabling, without the help of the Holy Spirit. And then we saw six iniquities of our tongue. Tonight we're going to see two more, but last time we were together, we saw six of them. The first one is that the tongue boasts great things. We also saw that the tongue is a fire. Thirdly, it's a world of iniquity. Fourthly, your tongue defiles your whole body. Number five, it sets on fire the course of nature. And then the last one that we looked at, we looked at a very uh, sobering ending. It sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. That's the sixth iniquity of our tongue. And so if you would, I want to read the whole passage in its context, and tonight we're going to finish up with looking at two more iniquities of our tongue, and then we're going to see the inconsistencies of our tongue. So if you would, with, with me, read James chapter 3. My brethren, be not many teachers, knowing we receive the greater judgment. If any, for in many things we all stumble. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they are so great, and are driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, wherever the pilot wills. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members. It defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast, birds, serpents, things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison." Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either a fine figs, so can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh. Now, Tonight we're going to put the other foot in the door, and we're going to complete the passage about the iniquities of our tongue in verses 7 and 8. We're going to see two more, 
And then we're going to see the inconsistencies of our tongue in verses 9 and 12. So let's look at the two more iniquities of our tongue, and I bet you can't wait. Ladies, one danger of our tongue is its inability to be brought under control in contrast to mankind who are able to control animals. That's what James says. Every kind of beast, verse 7, birds, serpents, things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Now, ladies, you can think of every kind of animal there is, and we have Betsy here, and she works at the zoo, so she could echo with me that this is true. Every animal that you can imagine falls under one of these categories. Every kind of beast, birds, serpents, things that are in the sea is tamed and can be tamed by mankind. You know what James is saying? It's possible for us to tame animals and yet we cannot tame our tongue. Now, the word tame here in the Greek does not mean to domesticate, but means to subdue or control animals. In fact, if you remember way back in Genesis 1.26, remember when man was created and then God created all the, you know, the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air. Do you remember one of the things that he told mankind? He said that you have now dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we as men, we as women, we have dominion over the animals. We have power to subdue them, and we have power to control them. Now, we can't make pets out of all animals, right? Even though my husband still would like to probably go to Don and Betsy's house and get a snake and have it for a pet in our home. But uh, we can capture just about any animal. In fact, it's amazing. I'm coming to the zoo on Friday, so I hope to see you there. But... It's amazing, isn't it, when you think about the animals that we can capture and put in cages in the zoo, and as yet as remarkable as that is, we cannot control our tongue. James goes on in verse seven or verse eight to say, as remarkable as that is, we can't control our tongue, but no man can tame the tongue. Now, ladies, this does not mean that we are always out of control with our tongues. We better not be. But it does mean this, without God's help, you will never be able to control your tongue. Think about it. Do you know the disciples did not have perfectly tamed tongues? Think of Peter. Peter's a great example, isn't it? We all can identify with Peter. Remember what he said? Oh, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And then what did he do with that same tongue? He denied God, denied Christ, even to the point he said he cursed. He denied him with curse and oaths. He said, I don't even know the man. Peter didn't have a tame tongue. How about the Apostle John? Aged old Apostle John, 100 years old. They're carrying him to the synagogue on a stretcher. You know what he's saying? Little children love one another. Little children love one another. Great things to say with your mouth, right? But do you know what John also did with his tongue in First John? And I mean, Luke 9. Remember what he wanted Jesus to do? He wanted Jesus to call fire down from heaven and blast a Samaritan village out of existence. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, John, you don't know what manner of spirit you are. Ladies, the disciples did not have tame tongues. My point is this, you don't have a tame tongue either without the supernatural help of God. It is impossible. 
It must be that divine inner enabling. Well, James goes on to give us our seventh description, our seventh iniquity of our tongue. Notice what he says. It's an unruly evil. The word unruly means it is restless. Do you know what this characterizes your tongue as? It is fickle. It is inconsistent. It always wants to come out of your mouth. It does. In fact, the word picture here in the Greek is like, and Betsy can identify with this. You know those animals that you see at the zoo or the circus and they're pacing back and forth and they want to get out of their cage? That's the Greek word here. That describes your tongue, ladies. It wants to come out of your mouth and say things that it should not say. It's unruly. He's not only saying it's unruly, it's an unruly evil. This means your tongue is degraded in character. It's prone to be injurious. You know, it's possible to secure the animal in the cage, but it's not always possible to secure our tongue inside of our mouth. Well, James gives us now an eighth description or iniquity of our tongue. Notice what else he says. He says it's full of deadly poison. Full of deadly poison. One of the images here that James is trying to convey to us is that our tongues are like a venomous snake right before it prepares to strike. In fact, the word poison is translated as an arrow. You know what that indicates? Your tongue has the ability to shoot arrows at people. And ladies, you've all done it. Every one of you have. Don't look so pious. You've shot arrows at your husband. You've shot them at your children. You you have. You've said sharp words. Now, notice that James doesn't say our tongues are half full of poison. You know, I wish he said that. He says they're full of poison. Full. Now, when I think of something that is full, I think of something that has no more room for anything else in it, right? What a sad commentary on our tongues. They are full of poison. Ladies, if you've committed your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ... That sack of poison contained in your tongue should be transformed into blessing, not just for yourselves, but for others. You know, most of you in this room, or at least I hope most of you in this room, would never intentionally put poison in your mouth. I pray you would never put poison in your mouth. But yet you will let poisonous words come out of your mouth. Most of you that are mothers, you would never intentionally put poison in your food that you serve to your precious little children and your husband. And yet we will poison our meals by gossiping at the supper table, slandering people, criticizing people. Jesus says, all things, whatever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. Wouldn't this certainly include everything you say? Are you saying things about others? that you would like them to say about you? Ladies, do we ever stop and realize that God is present right beside us, listening to every word we say? I think a good psalm to memorize is Psalm 139, right? The psalmist says this, Lord, you know everything about me. You know when I sit down, you know when I stand up, you know when I go to bed. Every moment you know where I am, you know what I'm going to say even before I say it. That's a scary verse, isn't it? Ladies, do we think about this? The Lord is right there with us. And I think we would be wise to ask ourselves this question before speaking. 
Would I say this if Jesus Christ were standing right here in his earthly form? I must tell you, he is. He is there with you. In fact, a few weeks ago, we were with another couple, and Doug says, Boy, you sure are being quiet tonight. And I was like, Yeah, that's the best thing to do. (laughs) It is the best thing. Just be quiet. I don't have, you know, I think I told you three weeks ago, Elizabeth Elliot said, If you can't improve on the silence, don't break it. So I'm just being really quiet these days. I'm not offended with any of you. I'm just being quiet. Now, I promised you three weeks ago or two weeks ago when we met that tonight I was going to give you some, I gave you, I think, then about 15 forms of speech that are unchristlike. And if you don't want to know what they are, you weren't here, you can get the CD and you can look at all of them, okay? But I promised you I would give you some definitions. And I want to give you four definitions tonight of the four areas that I believe the women that women are the most guilty of with their speech. The first one is gossip. Gossip. What is gossip? Gossip is idle talk, and it's not always true about other people. For example, did you know that Sally's father abused her? That's gossip. Or... Did you hear about Bill and his 10th car accident? That's gossip. Just idle talk. The second category of speech that I think women are guilty of is flattery. Flattery is praising too much or beyond the truth to praise insincerely. Let me give you an example. I just love being with you when I don't. Or, you know what, I sure missed you while I was gone when I didn't. That's flattery. Let me give you a good, a good definition that will help, or a good description. Gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. Okay, so that's a good way of thinking about that. Now, the third form of ungodly speech that I think women are especially guilty of is criticism. Criticism. Criticism is unfavorable remarks, being critical, being judgmental. This is a woman who constantly finds fault with everything. And I think a good example of this, remember when Moses sent forth the spies to spy out the land, they came back, and what happened? They grumbled and complained so much that the whole All the Israelites became discouraged. Another good example is, remember Miriam and Aaron? They criticized Moses for marrying marrying the Ethiopian woman, and what happened? (laughs) Miriam got leprosy. A critical person rarely says anything good about anyone or anything. They're just constantly critical. Now, the fourth And last area of sinful speech, and believe me, this list is not exhaustive. I would take those uh, about 12 to 15 that I gave you two weeks ago. I'd go home and look all those up in a dictionary because I gave you about 12 forms of speech that are displeasing to the Lord. The fourth one is slander. Slander. It's a little bit different than gossip. Slander is a false report, totally made up, meant to do harm to the good name and reputation of another person. We see that a lot in the government. We see it during campaigns. It's just people will make up stories that are not even true, never have been true, just to destroy a person's reputation. 
And ladies, I have known people that have their, their testimonies, their reputation, everything has been destroyed because one person decided to slander them. Just make something up. A good question to ask yourself before saying anything, I think, is this. Would I say this if this person were standing right next to me? If you wouldn't, then maybe you probably shouldn't say it. Well, James goes on in verses 9 to 12 to describe the inconsistencies, the fickle nature of our tongue. Notice what he says in verse 9. With it, we bless God and Father, and with it, we curse men. It's interesting, James uses the pronoun we, right? He's including himself in that. Why? Because he's already said in the first few verses, if any man can control his tongue, he's perfect, right? And James knows he's not perfect. I'm glad he kind of identifies with us. But he says, with this same tongue, we bless God, and then we curse men out of the same mouth. Now, the word bless here means to speak well of. In fact, it's interesting. Any time a Jew said God's name, you know what they'd say right after it? Blessed is he, blessed is he. So anytime God was said, blessed is he. In fact, a devout Jew walking down the streets of Jerusalem would not even step on a piece of paper that was on the street because they feared it might have God's name on it. And so they thought that would be blasphemous. And so James sees this inconsistency. Here you have this pious Jew. Oh, blessed is God, he's so wonderful, and I won't even step on this piece of paper because it might have his name on it. But who are you? I mean, and they turn around to their fellow man and they curse him. James, this is, says this is a shameful sin. Now, ladies, as modern day Christians, we do the same thing, don't we? A while ago, we sang some great songs, some of my favorite songs. We praised God. I hope you were really worshiping in your heart. We celebrate his name. I rarely speak evil of God. Do you? Do we speak evil of God? No. We sing about him, we talk about him, we bless him. And yet out of that same mouth that we use to bless and praise God, we turn around and we curse someone else. Now, you might say, well, what does curse mean? Well, it does not mean profanity. The cursing here means to call down curses in order that someone might experience vengeance. You're angry with someone. You're bitter at someone. It's not necessarily that you're using profanity. It's like, well, who do you think you are? I just hope God gets you for this. Ladies, in order to feel that way about someone, you must think more about yourself, right? Then you should. God abhors this double standard. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12, 3? 3, Do not think of yourself more highly than you should, but think soberly. Last year, as we studied the epistle of Philippians, remember what Paul says? That we are to have a lowliness of mind and we are to esteem what? Others better than ourselves and we're to look out what? For the interest of others more than ourselves. Are we looking out for the interest of others when we call down curses on them? No. Notice what James says. We curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Ladies, everybody that you hate, everybody that you are bitter towards this evening, everybody that you have a hard time loving has been made in the image of God, just like you. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. You know what this means? Everyone who is a human being possesses reason, will, 
a conscience, the ability to know and serve God, the ability to be conformed to God's moral and spiritual likeness. We are made in his likeness. And so if you go around cursing a man, hating someone, being bitter, being unloving, being unkind, you are insulting God whose likeness that person bears. You know what the idea here is? We look up to God, we bless him, we love him, we read his word, we pray, we fellowship, and then we turn around and we just like, we look at our husband or we look at our, you know, mother-in-law or whatever, and we're like, ugh. It's not right. It's not right. Notice what James says. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. You know, your praise to God loses its noble character when you taint it with bitterness and cursing towards other. No woman can acceptably praise and bless God while feeling bitter hatred toward her fellow man who bears God's image. In fact, listen to what aged old Apostle John says. If someone says, I love God, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Why? For he who does not love his brother whom he can see, how can he love God who he can't see? What's John saying? That's impossible. Impossible. And James goes on to say, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. My brethren, my sisters. He's trying to you know, glove this, this rebuke with gentleness. James is grieved with their inconsistencies. It's not right. It's not right. Ladies, think about it for a minute. Of what advantage is cursing someone, hating someone, calling vengeance down upon someone? What advantage is it? It's not going to affect God in his judgment towards that person on that day, is it? It's not. It's not going to profit the man being cursed. Doesn't hurt them. And it will do no good to you except bring further judgment on you in that day, right? So why do we do it? The tongue that blesses God and the Father and curses men made in God's image is in trouble. Oh, it's easy to come to church on Sunday morning, isn't it? Sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glory. You know that song? And then you get in the car and what? You fight all the way home. Or you play Roast the Preacher. Wasn't that a horrible sermon that we had today? What was up with him? Did he not get any sleep? Or, you know, you can spend time with Christian friends and you're all encouraged in the Lord and you, and you leave, you know, Starbucks or you leave your discipling time and, man, you're revved up and God is good, this is great, and then someone cuts you off in traffic and you're like, what? And you, you know, you blow on your horn. How dare you do that? Or you come to ladies' Bible study like tonight and then you gossip to your friend on the way home or your husband. Or you spend time in the morning with God, you know, prayer and his word, and you're in your prayer closet, and you come out of your prayer closet, and you shoot angry words at your husband or your kids. You get on the phone and say things you shouldn't say. My sisters, these things ought not so to be. In fact, I want you to consider a very sobering passage, if James is not enough. I want you to turn back to Psalms 50. You're saying James is enough. Could we please close this lesson? I'll go take some of that hot sauce back there for my tongue. Psalm 50, very sobering. We're not going to read all of it. Just start at verse 16 with me, if you would. 
God says, but unto the wicked, what have you to do to declare my statues or that you should take my covenant in your mouth? You hate instruction. You cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're, you contend with him, and you've been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue to frame deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. And you thought, ha, huh, I was altogether like you. But I will reprove you and set you in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God. Least I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whosoever offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that orders his conduct aright will I show the salvation of God. You know what the psalmist is doing here? He's re, he's, here he is rebuking the nation's hypocritical lifestyle. They recited God's laws. They spoke of his covenant, their profession of faith. They appear to be so righteous. Oh, we're so righteous. And yet they tolerated and participated in theft, adultery, slander. And they thought because God was silent, see, he's not judging me. Everything's fine. But the psalmist says something different, doesn't he? Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver Ladies, the point here and the point in James is this, of uncontrolled tongue is a very serious matter in the sight of God. And maybe you're sitting there tonight and you're saying, you know, Susan, this is really convicting, but I just can't control myself. Oh, I remember an illustration. One time I went to a Jay Adams conference. I will never forget this illustration. I use it a lot in counseling and discipling. I'll never forget it. Picture this. You and your husband are having a heated argument. I mean, it's a good one. Screaming, yelling, I hope you don't do that. But you're having a heated argument. And the phone rings. And it's your pastor. And you pick it up and you say, hello? Well, yes, everything's just fine. Of course, yeah, come on over. You get the point? You can control yourself. How do I know that? You just did. You just did. You know, the fact is, ladies, we choose not to, right? We choose to find pleasure in our sin. To say, I can't, should never be in your vocabulary. Should never be in a Christian's vocabulary. You can, you just won't. You just won't. Maybe you like getting angry. I don't know. Maybe you like putting others down to make yourself feel good. I have seen, and I know you have too, people who have ruined people's good reputations with the power of their tongue. I know friendships that have been broken and destroyed because of the tongue. I know couples who have divorced because they wouldn't tame their tongue. I know tragedies that have altered people's lives that otherwise would have been prevented if only someone would have bridled their tongue. Proverbs 18.21 is a great verse. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue of the tongue. Well, James turns to the realm of nature to further illustrate this intolerable inconsistency. Notice what he says in verse 11. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Now, ladies, the question here calls for what? A negative answer. No, of course it doesn't. Now, this would be terminology that the Jew would be familiar with. I mean, think biblical, okay? 
In biblical times, they didn't have the privilege of having air-conditioned cars. You know, they didn't go flying off to Florida. And so can you imagine, you know, you're a Jew and you're traveling, and it's hot. And most of the time they had sandals, that was it. And most of the time they walked. Very, very few times did they actually sit on a donkey or a horse to go anywhere. They walked. So everywhere you went, you walked. You walked to the market, you walked down to the river and washed your clothes, you walked. And so you're walking along, and you're thirsty, and you're hot, and ah, there's a mountain, and there is some water coming out, and I am so thirsty. Have you ever been so thirsty? Your, you know, tongue cleaves to your, the roof of your mouth, I have. And so you go, and you're like, ah, oh, right. And you start drinking, and it's so sweet, and it's so good, and you're having a great time, and then it turns bitter and salty, and you're like, what is this? Now, James isn't saying there can't be a, a slope that has kind of yucky water and a slope that has good water. But ladies, out of the same opening does not come fresh water and bitter water. Such things do not occur in nature and they shouldn't occur with your mouth either. If God wanted it to be that way, he would have given you two mouths, one over here and one here, right? This one here, this is a blessed God mouth. This over here, this is a cursed God mouth. I mean, cursed man mouth. Ladies, bitter speech coming from our mouths, which should be sweet, is tragic indeed. Well, James now asks a second question in verse 12, which also calls for a negative answer. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries? Either a vine, figs, so can no fountain yield both salt water and fresh. Again, notice James uses that tender word, my brethren. Can you just hear my brethren? Listen to me, saying, listen to me. It's interesting here, from the plant kingdom, he mentions three plants, three agricultural plants, that all describe the Jewish nation. Did you know that? Every one of them. The fig tree, the olive tree, and the grapevine. In fact, the fig tree was a common plant. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They went and got fig leaves, right, and made clothes. That might have been an interesting outfit. Also, it was often used to represent the Jewish nation. The olive tree was used for medicinal purposes in the Old Testament time. Also, fuel for the lamps. Remember the cherubim? It was made out of olive wood. In fact, right now at home, I have several nativities from Jerusalem that are made out of olive wood. It's a very fragrant wood. It's also used in Romans 11. Remember, describe the Jewish nation. Remember the Gentiles being grafted in as an olive branch. And then the last one, the grapevine, is used as a symbol of the nation in Isaiah 5. So all of these plants would be well known to the Jewish reader, the Jewish audience that James is writing to. Now, ladies, fig trees do not bear olives. I'm sorry. Nor do grapevines produce figs. In fact, you might put it like this. You know, some common plants I was thinking today, we, I love roses, dogwoods, crepe myrtles, but I'm sorry, roses don't produce dogwoods, do they? Dogwoods, and you'll come in April and we'll see the dogwoods, they don't produce crepe myrtles. They don't, right? And that's what he's saying. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or grapevine bear figs? No. Even though today we have a lot of crossbreeding. I don't know if you've seen in the grocery store broccoli flour. You know where they take broccoli and cauliflower and marry it together and it's broccoli. A broccoli flour. But ladies, broccoli is still broccoli. Cauliflower is still cauliflower. In fact, the other day I saw pear apple or something. It's a pear and an apple and they've tried to crossbreed that. James goes on to say, thus no spring yields, both salt water and fresh. A fresh heart cannot produce bitter speech. Ladies, your speech reveals who you truly are. True believers are identified by their speech. As Jesus said, out of your heart, your mouth speaks, right? 
You know, it's interesting, James doesn't draw any conclusions, does he? Back next week, we're going to have a lesson on wisdom. He doesn't draw any conclusions. Why? Because the conclusions are so simple, right? It condemns our inconsistencies with our tongue. These illustrations, the two fountains, the three plants, brilliantly manifest the double-mindedness of blessing and cursing coming out of the same mouth. No inconsistency is found in nature, and no inconsistency should be found with our mouth. In fact, let me ask you a question. If you had two bank accounts, you wish, right, in our day? Wouldn't you wish you had two bank accounts? If you had two bank accounts, and in one you deposited $10... For every kind word that you said this week, okay, you got $10 for every kind word in this bank account. But in this bank account over here, you only deposit $5 for every unkind word you have said this last week. Which one of your accounts would have the most money in it? Kind account, unkind account. Something to think about. How easy we slip with our tongues, right? In fact, I remember when I was working on this lesson talking to a friend who said that just that day she had slipped with a family member and she wished that she could take back the words that she had said. And we discussed how often we let our mouths run, we run at the mouth and that we wish that we did not do that. James already says, if you can control your tongue, you are perfect. And I know that's the desire, as I've talked to some of you since we've had this long break, to gain control in this area. So in closing, I want to give you three steps on how to help you gain victory over your tongue. The first one is this. You must admit your sin to God. Do you know confession of sin is always the first step in gaining victory over any sin, whether it's your speech, whether it's fornication, whether it's lying, whether it's anger, whatever your sin is, confession is always the first step. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes has mercy. Ladies, confess the sin of your speech. When you see your speech in light of God's omnipresence, it should bring you to your knees in confession of your sin. The second way to gain victory after you've confessed to God that it's sin, pray. You must pray. Pray regarding your tongue every day. Detailed prayer. Keep my tongue from evil, O God. Set a guard over my mouth, O God. You know, if you're getting ready to get with somebody and you know that there's going to be a temptation to say things you shouldn't say, pray about it on your way there. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm married, and a lot of times I just keep my mouth shut. It's the best thing to do. Set a guard over my mouth. In fact, I, I knew a woman one time that had this verse on her telephone. In fact, I was thinking, you know how on your cell phone you can keep something right there on the screen? Mine says, with the master. But she had this, and I thought, that would be a great verse to put right there on your cell phone because, you know, we don't think too much about home phones anymore. And her verse was this, you shall not go up and down as a talebearer among the people. Now, that's a good verse to put by your telephone, right? You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Number three, after you've confessed your sin, prayed about it. The third thing, resolve to discipline yourself regarding the use of your tongue. Resolve to discipline yourself regarding the use of your tongue. 
You might say, well, how do I do that? Determine not to criticize, not to receive gossip. Don't even receive it. Don't give it. Don't receive it. Don't belittle. Don't demean. Don't falsely flatter. I remember one time asking a woman who mentors me, I say, what do I do when people say things and I know my response back would be flattery, and she gave me some good ideas because I I knew flattery was a sinful form of speech, and I didn't want to flatter people. Don't lie. Don't boast. Find someone to hold you accountable. I mean, I told you when Debbie and I were in Florida a few weeks ago, uh, we were working on this lesson on the tongue, and we asked each other those hard questions, those application questions. Do you see any forms of speech in my life that's displeasing to the Lord. Debbie and I know each other well. Find someone that knows you well. Ask your husband. I have a husband who holds me very accountable for my speech. And when my daughter lived at home, I'll never forget this. She was in high school or coming home from college one time, and I was on the phone with someone, and I hung up, and Cindy said, Mother, do you think what you just said was necessary? And I was like, when are you going back to college? No, I didn't say that. but, But find someone to hold you accountable. And then take the rebukes when they say, you know, that wasn't a very good thing you said a while ago. Ladies, our tongues are the smallest members of our bodies. Remember, we saw that two weeks ago, but the largest troublemaker, right? The tongue is contained in our mouth. It is surrounded by our lips and our teeth, and yet it escapes all the time. If we are to bear evidence of a genuine Christian, it must be controlled. If your speech is no better tonight than it was a year ago, something's not right. You know, the unsaved world is watching us. We should not be the ones that they hear yelling at their kids at the grocery store. They should listen to your speech and know you are different. They should not, we should not be the ones they hear criticizing our husbands. They should not be, we should not be the ones they hear telling off-color jokes, dirty jokes, sexual overtones. Ladies, we need to allow God to use our tongues to steer the world into eternal life. I mean, the lost world needs Christ. Use your tongue to share the gospel with the lost world. Use your tongue to delight believers who are going through trials to encourage them, admonish them, be a blessing to them. Use your tongue to speak things that are gracious, words that are edifying, words that build up. Will you say with the songwriter as we close, take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee? Will you let the mind of Christ your Savior live in you from day to day by his love and power controlling all you do and say? I pray that you will. Father, thank you for this time again in your word. And I know that there's a reason again that we have had three weeks on this lesson. Thank you for um, the areas that you've shown me in my own life and how I still have so far to go in controlling my own tongue. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us the grace to be women who have speech that is pleasing to you. Lord, because we know that Your word says that on that day we are going to give an account for every idle word that we've spoken. And by our words we will be justified or we will be condemned. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of these ladies here tonight that their speech would reveal that they truly do know you. Because we know out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So purify our hearts and purify our minds so that our speech will be in accordance and be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.